This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. This episode is sponsored by the Live Alcohol Experiment, a 30-day science-based and compassion-led journey where you learn to develop a healthier relationship with alcohol without relying on willpower. Why? Because the truth is that willpower runs out. Instead, you learn how to focus on what you gain, not what you give up, so you can feel good about the decisions you make without shame or guilt. With the 30 days of video training, virtual daily coaching, and a private and supportive community, you get that and so much more. Join us today to get happier, healthier, and to take back your life. Your live alcohol experiment starts on the 1st, so sign up at livealcoholexperiment.com. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to this Naked Mind podcast. And I'm here with Katie. Hi, Katie. How are you? Hi, I am great. I am so excited to be here and nervous. Oh, well, don't be nervous. Just like we're chatting. Forget that, you know, we got that anyone's I listening. I won't tell you the number of downloads per episode. Okay. I'll tell you after we're done. That's great. That's perfect. <laughs> That's preferable. Awesome. So, why don't you sort of back us up to the beginning of your journey and tell us where everything started for you? Sure. Um, well, I guess I should say, I mean, I think my, I was talking with my husband about this yesterday when I was preparing for our chat, knowing the format of the show. And I was like, well, I mean, truthfully, my journey with alcohol started when I was a kid. Um, you know, I was not drinking, but alcohol was happening in my home. Um, you know, alcohol abuse has, is a part of my family story. It's been a part of my family's story for generations. Um, and so that was going on in my home. I do want to say upfront that in many ways I grew up in an ideal house. Uh, you know, my parents, there was always food on the table. My mom is a phenomenal cook. My parents are incredibly smart and supportive. They put a ton of financial resources into my education and to having me play competitive soccer all growing up, which has been a huge part of my life. And nice. my mom is like an inspiration in the woman succeeding in a man's work world. My dad is a phenomenal artist. Um, so there were a ton of resources available there. Unfortunately, there was also alcohol use and a ton of unmitigated anger and we never talked about any of it. And so it was like, I had these two parts of me that were kind of simultaneously developing. You know, I had a lot of creativity and athleticism and intelligence and all of these things going. And then on the other side, it was almost as though my emotional self was just getting like pushed down, overwhelmed um, and sort of, hidden away because it was there, it, there was just too much going on in the emotional field. What I think people would now call complex PTSD, mm. um, you know, and dysfunctional emotional family stuff. So it was a pretty, in many ways, it was a scary place to grow up. And um, I think that the alcohol had a lot to do with that. Um, I personally did not start using alcohol much until after college. So when I was in high school, I had a lot of what, you know, we would call adaptive coping strategies to deal with what was going on at home. You know, I was great. I was good in school. I had great friends. I was a competitive athlete. I can read 
like nobody's business. You know, if I needed to leave the external world, I could just crack a book and be gone. And so I think that those were some adaptive strategies. It wasn't until later that I think my maladaptive strategies of alcohol use and also disordered eating really came on the scene as ways to not feel my feelings. So it wasn't really, I was not much of a college drinker. The college party scene was not for me. Uh, I was very uncomfortable with what felt like a sort of will we or won't we hook up uh, vibe of college partying. So thankfully, I was able to uh, join the rugby team um, and found a lot of social life there. I mean, I lived in Italy my junior year of college and I think drank twice when I was there. So that was not part of what I was doing at the time. My disordered eating got kicked into high gear when I was in Italy. Um, I think that that was totally a coping mechanism or coping strategy. Um, but it wasn't until I graduated college, you know, I had been planning to become a public high school teacher, but realized I didn't want to do that. I thought that there were too many sort of bureaucratic things getting put in place that were restraining teachers. Uh, so I dropped out of the ed department and moved home to Alaska, moved in with my parents although that only lasted for a few months because at 22 getting busted for coming home late was not my favorite thing. So thankfully I was able to move in with a friend's mom who was incredibly generous in uh, her rent, keeping her rent very low. Um, and it was right around then that I started hanging out with a new group of friends who in retrospect, I think probably drank a normal amount for 20 somethings. Um, I think I totally started overusing alcohol and leaning on it. And that is when I realized what a beloved partner it could be in helping me deal with both social anxiety and meeting new people and keeping those feelings far, far away, numbing them out. And then also, um, What's the other thing that it helped me do? Oh, just deal with how scary your 20s are. Yeah. If you, you know, you don't have a plan. Planning and then like doing the next thing was always a way that I kept myself sort of regulated, emotionally regulated. And then suddenly you're in your 20s and it all disappears. Mm -hmm. um, and so then, you know, standard 20 something stuff. I got my heart broken and in very dramatic fashion was like, oh, you're going to break up with me? Well, I will move to Seattle, um, which is one of the glorious things about being in your 20s is that you can do things like that. You can like be upset one day and move to another state the next day. So I ended up moving in with some of my very good high school childhood friends um, and we drank a ton. Um, and then one of my very good friends, he and I had that sort of romantic Jack Kerouac drinking is, you know, the intoxication, the ecstasy of the intoxication and like the longing for something bigger that we thought would be revealed to us through alcohol. Um, yep. And yeah. And, but still, I just never at that stage in my life questioned whether I was using it too much because I was still in my twenties and it was sort of just like, this is what 20 year olds do. Um, 
at the same time, I was also not dealing with any, um, it just never even occurred to me that there was emotional stuff that I wasn't dealing with. I thought the alcohol use and I thought the disordered eating were just normal parts of being a young woman in her twenties. And so Thankfully, I have always been sort of academically and creatively ambitious. So I was working in restaurants in Seattle in the late 90s and was gratefully not pulled into the world of meth that was very available to me um, because I was like, no, that is that's a road I do not want to go down. And I headed off to grad school in Chicago, um, immediately picked up with, uh, again, normal, what I thought was normal social drinking. Um, although I did start dating a guy who we were, you know, both daily big time drinkers and he had some familiar anger patterns. Um, so after that, yeah, what did I do? I went off, I finished grad school, went to work at a boarding school and was able to immediately pick up with the social life there that involved a bunch of drinking. And that was in my late 20s. And then after that, I would say two pretty momentous things happened. One was the summer after I, the summer, the first summer after I started at the boarding school, I was in Chicago for the summer and was attacked uh, there at night by a serial rapist. Oh my God. I'm very thankful to say did not rape me, but he really did beat me up. Um, And so there was clearly some emotional fallout from that. But I will say, I think the most profound thing that happened was my sort of realization of the, um, how unavailable, how emotionally unavailable my family was Mm -hmm. when I went through that and how it didn't occur to me to want to lean on them or sort of Mm. anyone emotionally when I went through that. Like I had to talk myself. I went through so many things by myself. Like I went to, they eventually caught the guy and I went to the lineup by myself to prove that I was strong enough to do it. You know, every, all of these different things I did by myself to prove to myself that I didn't need anyone, which is not how to be a human. I don't think. No. <laughs> oh, that's intense. Um, and then the other thing is, I, you know, right around that same time, I started to have this feeling that every that I was going to lose control of everything, that everything was starting to crack, and I wasn't going to be able to hold it together. And so that is when I finally reached out and started seeing a therapist. Um, which I will say, if you want to cut to the front of the line with a sought after therapist, being attacked by a serial rapist mm-hmm. is one good way to get yourself to the front of the line. Oh, um, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so I started seeing this therapist and she was good. Um, but un- sort of unfortunately for me, one of my other great coping strategies is intellectual analysis and humor. And basically what happened in therapy was I found ways to cope better, put myself back together, sort of intellectualize about myself and completely avoid any of the feeling stuff that was going on underneath. Um, And 
again, I was continuing to drink at the boarding school. Finally, there was one point where I sort of got to such a low point that my therapist recommended that maybe I try Prozac. So I went on Prozac for a year, which uh, magically cured my binging and purging, but made me want to drink more which was strange. But so that's when I really, I think when I started sort of drinking by myself mm. um, on a daily basis, um, I was still able to do my job perfectly well. And which is not, which is an intense job at a boarding school, but I was still able to do it perfectly well. Um, but it did start to sort of change roles in terms of going from something that I did pretty socially to something that I was doing sort of habitually, even by myself. Um, and I do think, uh, you know, I think that the sadness and the loneliness that the, that I sort of needed the Prozac to help me with were trying to tell me things, most notably that if I didn't leave the boarding school, I was never going to have a husband and babies and that I did want those things. And so I sort of was able to pull it together enough to realize that I wanted those things. I got a different job. I moved away from the boarding school and into the city and sort of almost immediately met the person who is now my husband, um, which the, there are many, many places where the universe has really provided for me on this journey when I have made an intention clear. Um, and so I continued to, you know, uh, drink daily. My husband is not a big drinker, um, but we pretty quick, cause we weren't getting any younger. Pretty soon after we got together, we uh, decided to try to have a family and I got pregnant. And that was one of those things where it was like instantaneous, so easy to quit drinking because I was pregnant, like never even thought about it. Amazing how that is. It's amazing <laughs> how you make decision and it's, yeah. Yeah. When your mindset changes, yeah. your decisions change. Um, and even after he was born, I was pretty great at regulating my use so that I could continue to breastfeed because that was very important to me. Um, and then we, I got pregnant again, quit again, no problem. We moved to Vermont from Philadelphia, which was, um, sort of a dream because I really want, you know, having grown up in Alaska, I really wanted to raise kids in nature. Um, and so, you know, I have two healthy kids the 2015-2016 election season did not go well for me. Um, I was drinking, like day drinking at that point, which was, which was not standard for me, but that was when I was totally using it as a crutch. Um, I never got to the point where I was, you know, slurring, falling down, blacking out, like none of that. I was, you know, I was completely functional which I think is one of the things that may, sometimes I think must make it hard to come to terms with what you're doing because it seems like things are fine. Um, and so I, yeah, the election passed. Um, 
obviously it did not have, it did not end how I had hoped. Um, but so I was like, okay, I have to figure out what to do next. And sort of right around that time, I was 44 years old, it's 2019. And I had finished my first novel and found a publisher after working on it for seven years, I got elected to local office, which sort of made me feel like, okay, yes, I am doing direct action. Like I'm doing the work to help. Um, I started a podcast. I built a bunch of websites for myself and other people. I found a mentor to help me learn how to convert our lawn from lawn to pollinator garden and food forest. I have two healthy kids. I have a lovely supportive husband and I'm like, why aren't I happy? Like what is going on? Why am I still so sad and tired? And I, on, so yeah, so on my podcast, uh, I interview people who I already know. And one of the people who I interviewed was a former student of mine who is in recovery. And we were talking on the podcast one day about his sobriety. And he was talking about the saying in AA or the saying in sober circles of people who don't have a problem with alcohol don't wonder if they have a problem with alcohol. And when he said that, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> uh, and because I had, you know, I there had been times where I wondered and there had been there had started to become times where I tried to moderate, you know, I tried doing the sober October failed, tried doing, oh, I'll just drink on the weekends. And then it's like, well, the weekend starts on Wednesday, right? The weekend starts on Tuesday, like just, and then there were all of those things where I'm like, oh, I'm going to a social event. Obviously I have to do it then, or people are coming over. Obviously I have to do it then. Um, so I did start to wonder, but I always convinced myself that it was still totally normal. Um, and then uh, I think, yeah, it was still, no, this was, this would have been 2020 because my husband was out of town for work. I'm hanging out with the kids. It's, you know, evening we're doing whatever we're doing. I had had a couple of all day IPAs and I went into the laundry room and in sort of the ultimate in cliches, just totally broke down and started sobbing in the laundry room. And which is very not me. I am not a crier. Or I have not been a crier. And I was just sobbing and could not get myself together. And I was just like, why am I so sad? Wow. And this little voice said, do you think it has anything to do with the depressant you've been putting in your system every day for 20 years? And I was like, that is absolutely not what it is. It has nothing to do with that. <laughs> um, and so I got the kids to bed that night and I don't remember exactly what the chain of events was, but I do remember thinking maybe I should call the doctor tomorrow and find out about going back on Prozac. I went online and signed up for that night, um, possibly getting into clinical trials for use of psilocybin in treatment resistant depression. So I was, you know, looking for something 
And then again, that little voice was like, do you think maybe you should eliminate the depressant before you add an antidepressant or psychedelic? And then I also somehow, you know, again, the universe provides, um, remembered having listened to an episode of My Favorite Murder with Georgia Hardstark and Karen Kilgareth. And Georgia was talking about getting sober curious. And I remembered that she mentioned a book that had been inspirational, turning, you know, a turning point for her. And I was trying to remember how I found it because I went on their Instagram the other day and I couldn't find it, but somehow I managed to unearth it that night. And I got in bed and I read the entire book on Kindle. And yeah, yeah, it was just, you know, I'm sure you hear this daily. It was just like, oh yeah, that's right. Oh yeah, that's right. Oh yeah, that's right. And also that thing where it's like, oh yeah, like the party does start when you go out to the bar, the party starts before the alcohol gets there. Yeah. That was a hugely pivotal realization for me that it is mindset. And then, you know, I, you talk in the book about people who sort of spontaneously quit. And I had had that experience. Obviously you have that, or I had that experience when I got pregnant. Um, but then I had also in my life had that experience with diet soda. Um, I was a diet soda addict, like diet soda was what used to get me out of bed in the morning. And then I read this book that was like diet soda, fake sugar is going to give you cancer, idiot. Stop drinking it. And I just stopped drinking it that day. So, yeah. And so I'm reading your book. Um, and then I also read this mother Jones article that I had specifically been avoiding uh, that I had seen and then decided not to read. But there was a Mother Jones article that came out in the, I think, May, June edition, 2018 edition, that was, um, is alcohol give, did alcohol give me my breast cancer? And it was basically like, yes, it did. Um, and at the same time that I was you know, coming to terms with my own sadness, one of my very, very best friends was dying of breast cancer. And so it was just sort of like everything coalesced on that night. I read your book. I read that article. I actually let myself feel my feelings for the first time in a really long time. And I quit that night. Wow. Yeah. That was February 9th of 2020. That's so, so cool. Yeah. And it, you know, it's one of those things where it has, it has not been even remotely difficult. And after all of the times of trying to moderate and all of the times of trying to, yeah, I guess just the times of trying to moderate and it just stopped and I have not struggled at all. I can be around people who are drinking. I, I mean, granted, then we got a pandemic. So I have not gone a ton of places, uh, but I did go to a writing retreat this summer and people there were drinking and it just, it didn't appeal to me at all. I was not at all interested. One person there asked me, this was my first experience with this, with a person being like, oh, no wine. And I was just like, I'm off the sauce. And, you know, that was basically 
and I, uh, all I needed to say, I went to a wedding and rather than feeling deprived by the fact that I wasn't drinking, I felt lucky that I wasn't drinking. Like I felt really grateful that I didn't have to be that person and that I didn't ever have to be that person again. And that when my kids get married, I don't have to drink and I get to be fully present for it. And I get to remember all of it. Um, like I said, I, I was never sort of a blackout drinker, but you don't remember things. No, it gets fuzzy no matter what. It gets fuzzy no matter what. <laughs> um, and I'm also super grateful that I was not drinking for the pandemic because I'm sure mm-hmm. it would have gotten worse. And I'm grateful that I was not drinking for all of the disappointments around the debut of my first novel um, and having to cancel all of the readings and all of the visits that I had worked my ass off to get, um, that I was able to just, yeah, face that without alcohol. Um, But yeah, it was definitely that reframe from alcohol is my beloved friend that makes it possible for me to socialize and enjoy life to alcohol is a highly addictive poison that is trying to kill you. Um, and that reframe really helped. That's amazing. What is the name of your novel? Oh, it's called rage is a wolf. Ooh, yes. It is. Thank you. It is a young adult novel about a girl who thinks the earth might really be screwed and she and school isn't helping teach her anything to fix it. So she talks her moms into letting her drop out to write a post pandemic sci-fi novel. Oh, that's so cool. What a yeah. great plot. I love yeah. that. Thank you. Amazing. Yeah. That's so cool. So how is how has it been? How has life been aside from being easy? Yeah, right. Um I mean, but it that hasn't part. Been easy. But that yeah. part. Yeah, let's yes. clarify. Yes. Um, well, uh you and I were supposed to do this meeting, you know, a year ago. And unfortunately, right about a year ago, my friend who was dying of breast cancer did die. Mm. Um, And so that has obviously been incredibly difficult. Again, though, I am so grateful that I spent that year leading up to that without the fuzziness of alcohol. And that I was able to be present with her. I, thankfully I was able to go see her and be with her the day before she died and the day she died. And I'm just, you know, so grateful that that was not in between us. Um, It's interesting. Every, every person I've talked to who has had a really serious loss, um, after being alcohol free, it's one of the things they're most grateful for is just being able to be present with the grief and with the reality of life. And we think it's going to be the hardest thing. We think, well, I can't survive that. That's going to be the moment, you know, when, when I cave, but people who have come through it, just say like, they, they would not have changed anything. And, and actually I believe that allowing emotion and specifically grief to process allows us to heal in a way that we can't heal when we're, you know, trying, it's like a, a, a ball that we're trying to push under the water. Yeah. And it's going to come back. I mean, I think just in your story, and this is 
obviously just my hallucination, but your laundry room aspect for me, I'm just listening to it. I'm thinking, wow, that's a long time to not feel your feelings. And they, they yeah. come out, you can't. And now at least, you know, when you're feeling your feelings on a regular basis, then when they come, you're not blindsided. Yeah. It's amazing. The first time I really started feeling my feelings, I was like, I'm going to just start crying and I'm not going to stop. Like, I just felt yes. like it will never end. I will not survive it. Yeah. I cannot do this. I cannot go into it. And the truth was, is there was a few really, really ugly cries, but I mean, then it it's like, oh, I'm still alive. Like, yeah. And actually you feel a little bit euphoric once you really get it out of your system. There's such yeah. a clarity of energy that is amazing. And I was just so afraid of the feeling itself, you know, and once, I mean, I think the biggest lie we've been sold these days is that we are supposed to feel good all the time. Oh, yeah. Well, and the thing, I mean, two things, number one, the crying is the thing that gets you to the other side. Yeah. It's like when your brain can't process it all and you can't figure it out and you can't get it organized in a way that is palatable. Like when you just, and I tell this to my kids, like when you surrender yourself to the crying, that is your, like, it's your heart and your body's way of getting you to the other side of the feeling because your mind can't do it. Right. And, you know, our kids went to get their coronavirus vaccines yesterday. And one of the, one of our pod pals was um, with us and she cried afterwards. And, you know, I was just like, yes, I mean, I saw your body leading up to the shot and you were so tense and there was so much going on in there. Like, thank goodness you are able to cry because then your body doesn't have to hold on to it. It can let it go. Um, but then the other thing is when you don't let yourself feel your feelings, I mean, I'm noticing your necklace. If you can't feel the bad feelings, you can't feel the joy. I seriously remember it was probably just a few months after I had stopped drinking and, and I was feeling all the things, you know, but then I remember feeling joy and I was like, wow, this is different than I expected. It was like almost thicker or more permanent or something that it wasn't happiness. It wasn't, it wasn't fleeting. It was just kind of, I don't know. It's so, and I was it like, doesn't wow. feel manic. No, it just feels really peaceful. There mm. isn't, there isn't a frantic energy in it. And, and in my personality, like what I thought was joy was like that, you know, just go crazy fun. Everybody's getting drunk. Everybody's like, <laughs> doing, you know, we're all pushing each other, like, okay, who's yeah. going to be the one to, you know, at the wedding go like whatever, like yeah. just the, the antics. Right. And, and you're laughing, but it's so hollow. And, and when I really started to like get back to joy, I mean, it was very childlike and it was like, oh, mm -hmm. wow, this has been here the whole time. The other thing that has been there the whole time that I completely lost sight of was falling asleep at night. Oh that for God. me was the biggest, like, oh my gosh, because for me, it was like nights just went into this black tunnel of all of a sudden things got smaller and smaller and smaller. And then I just pass out and I never remember the moment of falling asleep. Okay. And I remember just falling asleep and just that euphoric moment where your mind just starts to drift off and you're thinking about different things and you're cozy. And I'm like, this is a very joyous experience and we get to do it every single day. <laughs> yeah. No, How was I robbing true. myself of that? Yeah, it is nuts. And I mean, just what you were saying about how we're, we're sold a, a bill of goods. 
um, which is really what part of what that Mother Jones podcast is about is, you know, how the alcohol lobby has paid a lot of money for you not to know that it's giving you cancer in the same way the alcohol lobby is paying a lot of money to convince you that that frantic and um, but that that frantic energy is happiness and that that is the thing that you want when and in fact, yes, it is that deeper, heavier, like, yes, that cozier joy. The substance, like it has substance. It is right. Um, something else you said that I was just going to comment on was when you're saying, you know, crying is the way through like that physical response is the way through. And it's so interesting because we come factory installed with the ability to cry and scream (laughs) and feel we don't come factory installed with the need for drinking, but somehow we've gotten that confused as if the things that are natural to our bodies, natural to our minds, natural to our spirits, natural to our hearts are the wrong things. And the things that are unnatural and outside of us are the things that we actually need to survive this life. Right. Yeah. Which I guess that is a great segue into, you know, you asked me how things have been going. And yeah. so, you know, the stopping drinking, it turns out has really been like the start of the bigger journey into going back and reclaiming access to all of those feelings that I, that were too overwhelming when I was a kid, um, that it was too scary to feel and that there was just not space, safe space to feel them. And so I'm again, super grateful. And the universe provides just as I had that student who came on my podcast to tell me about uh, alcohol and recovery. I had another student who um, she has been studying somatic therapy and she was also the one who sort of introduced me to the non, uh, to the notion of complex PTSD and recommended some books in there. Um, and so I have started working with a somatic therapist because again, therapy for me that is in the head is just a way to stay away from growing and stay away from feeling because I can intellectualize and analyze all day long. Um, and so I've started working with a somatic therapist Um, and which for people who don't know what that is, basically it is that you, that everything is just hyper-focused on what is happening inside your body. And so a session will look like, you know, sort of just closing my eyes and her being like, okay, so let's check in with your body. And you just close your eyes and you start sort of feel into yourself. And it's like locations where I I notice that I almost always have my solar plexus clenched. Mm. And so it's like, okay, what is happening? Why are you clenching it? And then you sort of build, um, you build the session around that. And then you also start to build your access to your feelings straight through your body. And then in addition to that, so right around the time that I stopped drinking, I reached out to a friend of mine to tell them that I was really struggling and that I felt like a small boat on the, on an ocean of sadness and had mentioned that I was maybe going to sign up for the, the clinical trials with psilocybin for treatment resistant depression. And they happened to know a uh, practice in Portland, Maine that does psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Fascinating. And 
Yes. And so I have been over the past 20 months. Well, it took a minute because we got a pandemic in there. Um, But so I guess it's been for the past maybe nine months have been working with both ketamine and cannabis in a therapeutic environment. So not recreationally, but in a therapeutic environment to basically go in and access feelings that I have done such a phenomenal job of walling off um, and then sort of repatterning myself to experience those feelings in their fullness, but without totally overwhelming my system. Oh, I love that. I'm, I'm so fascinated with that sort of stuff. I mean, I remember seeing studies coming out back in like 2015, 2016 about um, psychedelic treatment and depression. And just, it was fascinating. It seemed like over and over and even microdosing, like there's a bunch of um, stuff about being able to, like, like you said earlier, treatment resistant things and using, yeah. you know, things that are, um, I mean, a lot of the stuff is like, I don't know how to say the word, but psilocybin, how, how, what's that Psilocybin. Word? Psilocybin. Thank you. Yeah. That's, that's organic. That's from mushrooms, correct? Yeah. And yeah. cannabis organic from the earth. And so I don't know in my mind that, and I mean, I guess hops and, and fermentation maybe is too. So I don't know that there's, um, it's just really, how are we using it and to what benefit? And are we being super conscious of, is this helping me? Is this right for me? Because I, yeah. I never want to, and even for myself, I never want to create rules. That's why I don't say like, oh, you know, I'm never going to drink again or anything else because I think the brain responds to rules in a really negative way. Mm. But I love, I love exploring things and just deciding like, is this right for me? Because all yeah. of our journeys are so, so different. I recently talked to a friend and she went to Costa Rica and did a sort of guided ayahuasca thing mm-hmm. to dig into her childhood trauma. And her response was that it was one of the most powerful things she has ever done. And she's living in such a freer state because of that. And so I think, yeah, the more we can study this sort of things, the better. So how has your experience been yeah. with that? Well, and what you're talking about too, is like, is what is referred to as set and setting. So what your expectations are, what your intention is going in, and then what is the setting around you? And our culture basically is devoid of set and setting. It's just like, oh, the brakes are off because yeah, that's just the kind of culture that we live in. And I think there are even cultures where alcohol use because of set and setting becomes less problematic. Um, But certainly these plant medicines, when you do it with the intention and with a guide or in some kind of a, uh, you know, a psychological container. It's, I mean, I'm not going to say that nobody can get off and start abusing it, but it's really hard. Like it just doesn't even feel that way. You know, I've been a person, not anymore, but in the past who used cannabis pretty recreationally, and this feels nothing at all like that. Um, it's just totally different experiences. Yeah. I, I, gosh, I probably haven't smoked in almost as long as I haven't drank. It's been six years now, I think. And it was for me just super problematic because what you're saying set and setting, it was very much, I was doing it to numb. I was doing it to avoid my feelings and escape. And so, uh, it really matters your intention, you know? And I think obviously the set and setting and having some, um, 
therapy around it that is guided. I mean, it sounds fascinating to me. I'm, yeah. I'm always so interested to hear how people find healing, especially when there's been trauma. So yeah. thank you for sharing that. It's really yeah. cool. No, it is. It's radical. You know, it is unlike anything I've ever done. Going to write your and... grandma. Hey, grandma, doing some psychedelics <laughs> on the weekend. <laughs> you want to come? Uh, no, it, and it feels, you know, for, for, it makes me feel like I am doing something that it makes, yeah, I feel very hopeful because it does feel so different than anything I've done before. I know that my edges, you know, my boundaries are growing in terms of my willingness to be truthful and be vulnerable with other people. Um, and it really does, it is starting to feel like maybe I will be able to share sort of the joy of life with my children from an embodied emotional place, not just from an intellectual place, um, which is super important to me as a mom. Like I want them to feel that I can feel the joy of life um, as well as the sorrow. Yeah. If you can't model emotional health for your children, I mean, it's so hard to teach if you can't model it, you know, and, uh, and it, when it hasn't when you're been, upset is so important too, because we want to shield our kids from that, but then they think it's not okay for them to, you know, they, oh, it's, it's so important. This emotional yeah. health conversation. I just, I think it's just at the core of so much, right? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, as I look around at our falling apart nation, I'm just like, and that's trauma and that's trauma and that's trauma. Um, but yeah. And when you haven't had emotional health modeled for you, to then turn around and try to figure out how to model it for your children is super hard. Um, so I'm also grateful to be working with people who sort of know it. It's, it's like I'm being, you know, cheesily being reparented and being shown, oh, no, this is actually what it means to be vulnerable and to be open and emotionally open. And so in that respect, it also feels like I'm helping to heal some generational trauma that, you know, there were just, there were resources that were not available to generations before us. And there were ways of being and ways of doing things and ways of speaking and sharing that for most people were not okay. Yeah. And thankfully we are at a different point in time. And so I am hopeful that, yeah, I can sort of help change the trajectory of my family story. I love that so much. It's so beautiful. Yeah. And yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, obviously inherent in all of this is one of the first steps. I mean, first step is always going to be, in my opinion, self-compassion, being curious about your behavior without judging it so that you can really understand it before you change it and learning new things. Um, obviously you did that in one night, which is amazing, but then it is really the first step to emotional health is to stop numbing. You have to start to be able to feel your feelings because every time you do it, you realize, wow, I'm stronger than I thought. And that wasn't as bad as I thought. And actually there was benefit to that. And the more you do it, the more it becomes like a muscle, like anything else, you know, you just need to, you need reps and we've forgotten how, I mean, yeah, it's how it is. So, yeah. Well, yeah, it's the fear of the thing is worse than the thing most of the time, which again, to go back to getting vaccines, you know, I said to the kids yesterday, like it's the fear of it that hurts the most. The thing yeah. itself is over in a flash. Yeah. And 
but yeah, it's all of the fear leading up to the thing that is going to be bad and going to be scary and that will be unbearable. But yeah, just what you're saying, you can bear it. Yeah. I love that. Well, this has been amazing and I've really enjoyed talking to you. So let me ask you the question that I ask at the end, which is if you were going to go back in time to, um, you know, the Katie who is like, Mm. oh man, well, I guess if I'm wondering if I have a problem, maybe I do. And, you know, (laughs) trying to moderate and what would you tell her about how life is now? Yeah. Um, everything you've been, well, I mean, I guess, first of all, you can't really ever change anything if you're happy, you know, you can't want to change it because I'm so happy with who I am and where I am. But that said, uh, if I could go back, I would, I think I would say everything you're scared, you're not going to be able to pursue, whether it is, you know, the depth of feeling that I want to be able to teach my children, whether it is really being able to dive into my writing life, um, with bravery, uh, you know, having a more emotionally intimate relationship with my husband and my friends, all of those things that I was scared I wasn't going to be able to have, you can have those things. I love that. That's so awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story with us. It's been really great. Yeah, it was really nice to be here. Thank you. And thank you for creating a place for people to share these stories. I know they've been helpful for me. And yeah, I can hear in the stories how helpful they have been to so many people. So thank you. Well, it's awesome. The stories are the best. All right. (laughs) Talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you. Hey, I'm so excited because we are literally just about to start another live alcohol experiment. And if you don't know about the alcohol experiment, you need to literally drop everything right now and go to livealcoholexperiment.com. Here's the thing. This is a 30-day challenge and it's designed to interrupt your patterns and put you back in touch with the best version of you. You'll know it's that version that's living the most joyful life, that version that doesn't need alcohol to relax or have a good time, and that version that's having more fun and is more peaceful than ever. Again, it's just a 30-day challenge. It's live every single day. It's starting on the first. So hurry up, join me at livealcoholexperiment.com. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today.